This week's episode of the Security Ledger podcast is brought to you by Code42. It's time to rethink data loss prevention. Today's progressive, employee-focused, idea-rich organizations are looking for new, less restrictive ways to protect their data. Code42 next-gen data loss protection is a simpler, quicker way to secure an organization's endpoint and cloud data from loss, leak, misuse, and theft. You can check them out at code42.com. That's code and the numbers 42.com. This is Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode, number 176. Our data shows that last year, 66% of breaches for organizations were actually caused by insiders. Sharing information across your company or outside it is easier and more seamless than ever. Alas, that also means that stealing documents and data is easier than ever and harder to detect as well. In our second segment, we speak with Joe Payne, the president and CEO of the firm Code42, about how new tools are needed to protect organizations from insider threats and data theft. But first, software is eating the world, as the saying goes, and these days, a lot of the munching is happening courtesy of free and open-source software. Since the open-source software movement first got going in the early 1980s, the use of open-source has grown exponentially. Today, open-source libraries and other components can be found in virtually every substantial software application in use. But the rapid use and frictionless adoption of open-source isn't without a cost, namely security debt. Bugs like Heartbleed in the ubiquitous OpenSSL software open the eyes of the security community to the fact that serious and exploitable holes may lurk in other widely used open source components. But surveying such a massive repository of open source code is a Herculean task. Better to know which open source components are the most widely used and shared, as well as which pose the greatest security risks. That's why the folks at Harvard University's Lab for Innovation Science and the Linux Foundation have teamed up on the second ever open source census and the first to identify and measure how widely open source software is deployed within applications by private and public organizations. The goal was to draw a more complete picture of free and open source software use. Their report offers a unique insight into the security challenges facing the open source community, as well as use patterns around open source components. To discuss their work, we invited Frank Nagel of Harvard Business School and Mike Dolan, the Vice President of Strategic Programs at the Linux Foundation, into the Security Ledger Studios to talk about the second open source census. My name is Frank Nagel, and I'm an assistant professor in the strategy unit at Harvard Business School. Frank, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Mike, could you just say your name, title, and affiliation? Mike Dolan. I am senior vice president of uh, projects at the Linux Foundation. I work on the various projects that we host and set up at the foundation in terms of governance and structure and things like that. Linux Foundation, this is the second annual census that you guys have done. What, what's the, uh, what was the animating idea behind these census? The census one was focused on looking at the Linux distributions uh, and what, what would a common Linux distribution have in terms of its packages and which of those packages are you know, most commonly 
showing up and uh, would have, you know, potentially access to the network interfaces and have access to, you know, super user privileges, for example. And that gave us a list of a target list of projects that we could look at in terms of digging deeper into which ones may need additional resources, which ones may need uh, help in other areas. And, you know, from that work, we were able to identify projects like OpenSSH, for example, had some issues and some needs. There were some issues and needs around the projects focused on how you handle time on a network. So um, it helped us inform the next steps of, you know, being able to help improve uh, some of the critical projects that we all depend on, you know, was trying to understand which projects are we talking about. And the census too that Frank's been working on was an extension of that. Is I think he described, you know, it was more taking this this slight dif- different direction here was to move into what are the production applications that companies are using, and then which open source software packages are the are being used in those applications. And so it was looking more at, you know, the applications being deployed instead of looking at sort of like a a Linux distribution level. So, I mean, is it too much to say or an oversimplification to say that the idea, the germ of this idea maybe started with Heartbleed as sort of the uh, the shot over the bow or the wake up call uh, to the community that uh, we need to really uh, stop taking for granted the security of some of these widely used uh, open source components and projects and, and actually kind of wade in and see where, where things stand? Yeah, I think, I mean, from my perspective, I'll let Frank weigh in too, but I, th- I think Heartbleed was a cornerstone, you know, or a turning point, you know, where it, it was just so pervasively used in so many different ways that every company was suddenly overnight, you know, tasked with scrambling to find out where is this in yeah, our infrastructure. And it was everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and it was everywhere. And it was everywhere they didn't know about either too. <laughs> You know, everywhere, every rock they found and started turning over that w- they didn't even realize was there, they were finding it. And so I, I think it led to a practice around needing to better understand what the software supply chain is for companies, because a lot of this technology comes in, you know, in various forms. And if you don't know what you're actually deploying in your infrastructure, you're at a significant disadvantage when one of these security incidents or issues comes up. Build on that slightly because I think one of the things that also Heartbleed helped everybody realize is that just because a project is extremely widely used does not necessarily mean that it's extremely well supported, right? So there's a in in the case of OpenSSL there was a a great group of committed core core folks, but it was a rather small group. We have of course Linus's law that says with enough eyeballs all bugs are shallow, but if you don't have enough eyeballs, then then the second part doesn't apply, right? And so. That's one of the other things that we're, we've been trying to identify is not only what are the most widely used open source components and packages, but also how well supported and maintained are those packages, which of course would be correlated with how long it would take for you know a vulnerability to be discovered. So the first census was about the core, uh, Debian and, and some of the core components of that. That's a, I guess, well-defined target in some ways. And this one... Uh, census two is obviously vastly broader in scope. How did you um, determine where to draw the boundary lines, given that uh, there are not clean margins on this? It, that's a great question, and it's unfortunately not one that we don't have a perfect answer for. Because you, as you kind of unpeel the onion, you just find more and more layers behind the open source ecosystem that are are just as as crucial as the outer layers. And so, um, at the moment, uh, in the the way that we've kind of been focusing on, as as Mike mentioned, we've been focused on what application writers and developers are using in terms of 
open source packages. Um, so more in kind of the back end of what's being used. Uh, but even that is still a pretty broad definition. So at the moment, we're still casting a fairly broad net, although we're limited in kind of scope to, to seeing what developers are using in the software they are creating. And what, and what was the methodology that you guys developed, to, that you all developed to do this? What data did you have to, to build on and work from? And, and um, you know, what did you need to do on your end? Sure. Yeah. So we're, we're relying on uh, kind of a mix of, of public data, as well as you point out some partnerships with private uh, uh, software composition analysis companies. On the public side, a lot of what we're, we're using is data related to dependency mapping and understanding, you know, the network structure of open source, right? How it all ties together. Uh, and then on the, the private side, um, we've partnered with these SEAs um, to who, so the SEAs in general, what they do is um, go into companies and, and scan the code that they're using to um, basically to give the companies more insights into what's going into their products, but in particular to make sure they're not violating any open source or other types of licenses. Anytime you're dealing with a large data set, it's always a bit uh, messy. But when you're combining multiple data sets from different companies, it kind of becomes even more complicated. So in terms of methodology, we spent a lot of effort looking at standardizing names um, and also mapping different volumes, right? So some companies are smaller, some are larger. And so the numbers that they have are going to be very different. Uh, and so we do some kind of statistical analysis to make sure that, you know, it's the, the results aren't just dominated by one big company, for example. You mentioned the naming, and this is one of the kind of recommendations or findings of the report is that nomenclature around these open source components is uh, very, very challenging. There isn't any consistency. And of course, in doing the census, that made your work a lot harder. Could you flesh that out for us a little bit? Like, how exactly does this, is this a problem? And like, where do you see this uh, in, in naming? How does it, how does it affect the the census and the work? That you yeah. So, so there's a couple reasons that, you know, we can, we kind of see this happening. One, um, SEAs will call uh, different packages by slightly different names. Uh, and that's, you know, a problem for us, but the broad, the broader problem is related to that in that um, often there's a, a lack of consistency in kind of naming um, uh, uh, naming systems uh, related to, to open source. And so we even have, you know, the case, cases where there's, there's multiple packages that have the same name. And so it's only when you get down to kind of the package manager level or, or the GitHub repo or, or very specific identifiers that you even know exactly which package you're actually talking about. And is that because it just individual developers might <clears throat> grab it and rename it something just within their own uh, application? Yeah. And so sometimes it has to do with people not being aware that the other package with that name already existed. And other times, indeed, it has to do with, you know, people end of life in certain projects and spinning up new projects. And so where it lives is um, changes, but technically it's kind of the same project. And, um, and there's no clear way of kind of delineating that history um, when these kind of, you know, new packages pop up. Go ahead, dip my cam. Yeah, I would say when you look at, you know, a, a company trying to manage all of the software and, you know, the, the various components that are going into their, in the entirety of their infrastructure, you know, many companies actually saw this with OpenSSL too. There were so many different naming variations associated with OpenSSL versions and, 
and different, you know, forks or different adaptations that showed up in, in different as dependencies and different code that they were using. Um, and the reality is that it, it just scales the problem because not only do you not know where something is, now you have to find it with a number of variations potentially uh, in terms of where it's located or what it's called. And, and so it, it is a challenge even beyond just, you know, this census work when companies are trying to manage the software that is coming into their supply chain or from contractors or from suppliers or, you know, whatever the source may be, their own developers. It's really hard to identify where all of it is uh, when everybody's using a slightly different naming convention. And that extending that, it of course, makes it even uh, then even harder to patch and upgrade things because you don't know exactly which version you're using and which one is vulnerable. And it all ties into kind of coming back to security. Um, and uh, and it causes some serious problems. So one of the other issues you raised in your report, um, Linux Foundation, Harvard, um, and others, was around the security of developer accounts uh, or uh, and and the folks who are contributing to these projects, adding code to them. That that is an area of weakness. Talk just a little bit about that and and how that kind of bubbled up as a as a top issue in the census that you did. When, when thinking about kind of the developer accounts, um, you know, we, we were actually quite surprised how many of the, the top, um, you know, top handful of packages were actually housed under individual developer accounts rather than kind of an organizational account or something. Like that. Um, and so certainly we've seen uh, a, a bit of an uptick. It's not necessarily a widespread problem yet, but we've seen uh, an uptick in um, people getting into projects and and putting backdoors in, for example, right, or or kind of tweaking the code in ways that are go unnoticed, and that you know I think is something that is is you know kind of the open source being a victim of its own success, right? It wouldn't be worth doing that if it wasn't successful, and uh, but because it wasn't necessarily you know all these especially smaller projects weren't necessarily designed to kind of be fully relied upon in a broad scale. Um, they didn't have kind of security from a, a high level uh, baked in from the very beginning. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things that I think, uh, if nothing else, well, hopefully the preliminary report shines a light on a, a lot of things, but certainly that's one um, that we think folks can do things about in the, in the near term. I mean, the security issues you noticed, are they mostly around account security, kind of, you know, multi-factor versus single factor authentication, or are they around the security of the repos themselves and, and how they're configured? And what, what are some of the issues? So, so more on the first, right, the single factor versus multi-factor and things like that, but also the notion that, you know, I mean, there's, there's the classic scenario of, of, unfortunately, if somebody gets, you know, run over by a bus, right? <laughs> if that's how, you know, these types of important projects are, are housed under one person and nobody else has access to kind of, you know, uh, the underlying uh, infrastructure, then that could be, you know, a, a different type of security problem. Forget about the, you know, kind of malicious actors trying to get in and put back doors in. Yeah, we, we have seen the bad actors getting crafty in this space too, in terms of, you know, there was one developer who sold their, their account to, uh, a, a bad actor uh, using Bitcoin over some anonymous network, and you know, suddenly, you know, with 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 the advent of you know, sort of NPM and, and the package repositories that are you know pushing out you know real time updates on you know many many projects uh, you know that are incorporated in, in some of these applications, the velocity at which somebody can distribute 
um, a modified package has changed sort of the, the threat matrix in terms of how you look at this um, because you can very quickly compromise a number of systems just because of the underlying uh, package distribution system at this point. You're listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This week's podcast is brought to you by Code42. Well, you know, one of the things that you observed in your report is uh, just simply that, the, as you talked about sort of the legacy problem, but I, I guess one way to phrase it is that, you know, uh, uh, code gets old, um, uh, projects get old and kind of uh, long in the tooth, and uh, developers are, are forever interested in what's new and happening and sexy. And, and there this dynamic develops whereby as projects age, the developers lose interest and it gets harder and harder to maintain those projects. True in other, so many other areas of life, but I guess what do we do about it in the context, in the sense of open source? Because just because it's not being actively developed as much doesn't mean that developers aren't using it. Yeah, that's that's definitely right. I mean, we saw plenty of, um, uh, even in our kind of top two top 10 lists in, in the preliminary report, um, we saw a number of instances where projects were very widely used, but hadn't been updated in years. You know, nobody had made any commits in at least a couple of years. There's a few things we, you know, think we can do about that. Um, one is certainly just bringing light to this kind of issue, because, you know, often when people talk about legacy, they're talking about, you know, you haven't applied the latest patches, right? And you're kind of behind on your patching. But, you know, as you just kind of framed the, the problem, if nobody's actually creating the patches, then nobody can apply them, right? And so one of the things that we're doing is is we're planning on launching a uh, large-scale developer survey and, and surveying open source developers to understand you know why indeed they may you know shift away from a project or or uh, shift to a new project and kind of what their incentives are and why they you know may change their behaviors and also at the same time to think about how um, organizations that that rely on these types of software or these particular packages uh, can actually encourage you know the, the maintainers to to keep maintaining right whether that be financially or through access to programs or different things like that so kind of exploring some of those options and um, excited to run this kind of big survey to really see more the human side of things as opposed to the the technical side of things that we've been digging into so far. What are some of the most used open source um, components out there? I know you you broke your list into JavaScript and non-JavaScript based components just because JavaScript was so prevalent. If you could uh, pull out some of the ones that um, are particularly uh, high on the list, uh, independent of what letter their the component name starts with. I won't uh, delve into kind of which ones are are were the highest on the list, but I think all of them that we found, a handful were were interesting for various reasons, and I can you know delve into one or two. So, for example, inherits, which was a, a Node.js package, um, is you know one of these one of these projects that is very widely used. Um, but as we point out in the report, there have been no commits to the projects from December 2016 to June 2019. So two and a half years, this very widely used project um, hadn't had any changes to it, right? And, um, and that's just an example of kind of one project that is indeed widely used, but is not currently, not anymore, widely supported or uh, uh, updated. In this report, we've pointed out a number of important pr- uh, projects that are you know, showing up often in what companies are deploying in their production environment. 
And if this is what companies are deploying, you know, how it got there, I think would be an interesting conversation too, especially when we start to talk about some of the more, you know, older projects that haven't had commits or any updates in the last few years. The reality is that, you know, those are dependencies of something else, of something else usually. And while nobody may be looking at that particular package and making an explicit decision to include it, it did get included. Um, and I think there's some observability that open source software allows in terms of being able to get better visibility into that supply chain. And maybe there's an opportunity for you know more tooling around this so that as developers are writing code and calling a function that's in some dependency of a dependency of a dependency, that there's some sort of metrics or some sort of risk assessment that can be applied to those those packages to be able to give them better insight at the time of development of where things are at. And then, you know, at the time of production and runtime, as things are being deployed in containers or, you know, some other form, you know, being able to understand what the componentry and, and what the, the composition of that is like, it would be interesting. Mike Dolan of Linux Foundation, Frank Nagel of Harvard University, Harvard Business School. Thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Frank Nagel is an assistant professor at Harvard Business School. Mike Dolan is the vice president of strategic programs at the Linux Foundation. They were here to talk about the recent Census 2 report on open source security. Up next, back in the Watergate era, stealing sensitive data was a cloak and dagger affair. The burglars hired to obtain sensitive strategy documents from the Democratic National Committee needed physical access to the DNC's offices in the Watergate building, as well as the file cabinets that contain the documents. And they went equipped with flashlights and other implements to do the job. These days, sending out sensitive strategy documents is as easy as dropping a PDF or a Word document into a Slack channel and clicking send. The wholehearted embrace of the internet and network deperimeterization has created a tricky problem for companies in both the private and public sector that want to maximize the flexibility of their workers without losing track of critical or regulated data or valuable intellectual property. What's needed, says our next guest, are better monitoring tools that are actually adapted to the current norm of hybrid on-premises and cloud or multi-cloud environments, and tools that are attuned to spotting patterns of suspicious activity that may indicate data leaks and exfiltration. To talk about how companies are adapting to the challenges posed by these new tools and platforms, we invited Joe Payne, the president and CEO of Code42, an insider threat detection firm, into the Security Ledger Studios to talk. Yes, my name is Joe Payne. I am the CEO of Code42. Code42 is a leader in insider threat protection. And that's a lot of words. But what it really means is we provide security solutions for large organizations and small organizations to understand where data is leaving their enterprise. Um, that's, a, you know, insider threat detection. Um, we hear kind of a lot about the concern about insider threats, whether those are employees or contractors or just outside attackers who are kind of masquerading as insiders. Talk about the shape and dimension of the insider threat problem that organizations are facing today and, and why um, it's a particularly uh, a painful one or acute one for, for organizations. Yeah, what's really happened is the way people work uh, in the last few years has fundamentally changed. We've got all of this new technology that allows organizations to collaborate with each other. So things like Slack and Teams 
and Microsoft OneDrive and Google Docs, which people are pretty familiar with. These are fantastic technologies that help teams and workers collaborate with each other, edit each other's documents, uh, share information and data. And they've been great at making the average worker much more productive and much more involved with their team. Unfortunately, um, they have sort of that, that technology innovation has outpaced the security that's wrapped around it. And these same tools that allow us to share information readily across our enterprise with our peers have also made it really easy to share information outside the enterprise, whether it's an employee sharing with another company or an employee sharing with themselves or an employer or contractor even accidentally um, sharing information that they didn't mean to put out and make available to others. So these are the kind of uh, changes in the way we work that have resulted in unintended consequences of there being a a lot more uh, concern around uh, data exfiltration. Yeah, and these are are tools and platforms like Slack and Microsoft Teams and uh, Facebook's got one too, Facebook Workplace or something like that. Yep. Yeah, they're amazingly powerful and they kind of combine, you know, messaging and scheduling and tasking and they're they're just incredibly flexible and everybody uses them. They do. So what's the problem with that? That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is great. It's great from a productivity standpoint and CEOs like me have been telling our employees to use these tools aggressively and share information. And the other thing is that they're all cloud-based. So they're really easy to use inside the corporate network, outside the corporate network, when you're working from home, etc. And this is all very good. Unfortunately, it's also created lots of holes in the organization uh, for ways to move data around. You know, if you think about data in a company today, almost Mm. everything, whether it's sales lists, whether it's payroll data, uh, whether it's uh, source code, it all can be stored in a digital file today. You know, 25 years ago, everything was in paper files and in a file cabinet in the office and only a few people had access to it. So you didn't really worry about sort of your company schematics leaving the office. But today, everything is in the form of, of a file. And when you have all these great sharing and collaboration platforms, it's very easy then to uh, share that data uh, outside the organization. So I'll give you an example. Um, it's easy to take to go to join a Slack channel that is a public Slack channel that may not be your company's Slack channel, and then to share a document across that Slack channel. It's also really easy to upload payroll data from the company up to your private Dropbox account while you're sitting at home having a cup of coffee in the morning. And traditional security tools were just not designed and are not capable of of seeing that kind of data exfiltration. So when you combine all these things, that data is portable, that people are are mobile and they're working from home in different places, and that they're using these collaboration tools, we really saw that the market needed new cloud-based, you know, sort of born-in-the-cloud tools that could detect and investigate and respond to the kind of data exfiltration events that are happening in 2020. And so that's why what Code 42 built. Yeah, you think of the old movies where the guy wants to like steal the schematics and he's like, you know, in the office at night with like the flashlight in his mouth and the, and the you know, mini camera taking pictures of, you know, papers and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, wouldn't it be yeah. great if it was like if if it was still that way? No, I mean, no, no no need, no need anymore. <laughs> I mean, the great thing is, look, let's 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 make sure we see this 
in a positive light. We work better together as people than we ever have with these tools. Slack is a fantastic tool. Teams is a fantastic tool. So our work is getting better, but the security team's job is to make sure that a few bad apples don't don't spoil the bunch. And you know, traditionally, the security team would would take something called data loss protect uh, prevention, so DLP tool, and they would say, "Oh, well, we're going to block that." And so here you have the CEO saying, "I want everyone to share documents. I want people to collaborate and work together." And the security team comes and says, no, "We're going to block anything that looks like." you know, they shouldn't be sharing. And we're going to try to classify all that data so we can know what's important and what's not important. And those kind of solutions are just uh, anachronistic. They just they just don't work anymore. You can't, you know, you, we want people to share. We don't want to block their their productivity. And, and ironically, what happened in those solutions is when an employee got blocked, they just would go around the corporate IT system and use their own Gmail or use their own Dropbox or et cetera. And that only makes the problem worse. Yeah, it, it is amazing how seamlessly, I mean, I, I do a couple volunteer organizations and, you know, you'll kind of pick up these Slack memberships and accounts to, you know, various, you know, Slack instantiations, like their Boy Scout badges or something. I mean, it's like, you know, after a while, you've got like 20 of them, you know, on your on your Slack app, you know, and, and you can just bop back and forth between them, depending on what's going on. Yeah, we hear from our clients, that's one of the areas that they're most blind and that um, before we come in and they, they just don't know what people are sharing via Slack because essentially it's really easy to upload a file into Slack and then share it with, with, that, with your channel. And, and again, the product was designed to do that. Uh, the unintended consequence is that there is real data exfiltration. And listen, it, the, there are people that are, the data really indicates that um, that there are people that are taking advantage of these vectors. And this is not just some, you know, well, this might happen. I, our, our data shows that last year, 66% of breaches for organizations were actually caused by insiders. Um, so if you think about that for just a second, it's astounding. It's 66, two thirds are on insider threat. Only about 10% of the budget for security teams is focused on insiders today. All of the budget is focused on, you know, hackers and nation states and, uh, malware and phishing and all the stuff coming from the outside when it turns out, you know, the biggest threat actually are coming from the inside today. So when, when you talk about insider threat, uh, programs such as they are not being uh, attuned to this problem or not really being able to keep abreast of just the advancements in the technology itself and the development of platforms like Slack and Teams. You know, historically, what are we talking about uh, within organizations in terms of like their insider threat programs? What would these consist of? And how do they, in your mind, how do they need to change or mature to, you know, address the threat? Yeah, well, first of all, um, in, in, traditionally, insider threat programs have been something that most organizations didn't want to talk about. Uh, because we're living in a world where uh, competition for talent is high. And so it's an uncomfortable conversation to say, look, there might be a few people that are on the inside that are, uh, are they're doing things that we don't want them to do. And it's, it's, it's simply an uncomfortable conversation for organizations to have. One of the things that we stress to our clients is your insider threat program should be very visible. You should make sure that you, that you're very clear with employees, you know, uh, what the program looks like, you know, what are the, the technologies that you monitor? How do you monitor them? Um, and how it works. We think that that has a great um, effect on making sure that people don't do things that they that they shouldn't it's kind do. Of a loose lips sink ships type of uh, uh, messaging. It's no, it's it's more around. 
your activities being monitored. So letting people know so that if you upload something to uh, your Dropbox account, we'll know that. And that your the files that are moving uh, around your organization, we keep track of because this is important corporate information. So we tell companies, you know, be very open about the fact that you have a program and then develop a program that does also, you know, we assume positive intent. Our programs aren't um, designed to do any kind of blocking of employee activity and productivity. Our programs are designed specifically to detect and, um, and investigate and then allow for a response that involves managers and HR and folks like that. So we don't assume sort of negative intent. We don't assume somebody's attempting to do something. I'll give you an example. You know, we have a, a company that's a VC uh, venture capitalist. And when they put our technology in, they immediately found that they were sharing lots of information publicly on their on their G drive that was confidential information of the companies that they were investing in and that they were talking about investing in. And uh, it was available to anybody on the internet. And they just didn't, they just didn't know, you know, we, we didn't, they didn't call in the police and, 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 you know, reprimand the employees. They, they made, they educated the employees and made them aware of, of what they had done and, um, and that they were out of policy and, and they, they made a self uh, correction in that case. So when you say that over two thirds of organizations say they were breached due to an insider threat, that would include both malicious and inadvertent, right? And I guess the question is, what's your sense? How, what percentage of those breaches are actually just, again, people trying to do the right thing, but, um, you know, screwing up the permissions and leaving stuff publicly exposed or depositing it in the wrong place? Yeah, our data is not perfect on that yet, but it looks like it's about half. Mm-hmm. It's about half. It's about half the time people just are making mistakes and they're moving quickly and they have good intentions. And, you know, maybe they got blocked by some corporate um policy so they put something in their Dropbox account so that they could share it with their teammates. <laughs> it's that they didn't intend for that to, to be a, a data leak. So that does happen. But we also are seeing quite a bit of uh, intended consequences. And, um, and where you see that especially is in departing employees. Um, so you know we look at, um, at, at, at sort of the indicators uh, that someone might be looking at, at, uh, at exfiltrating data. So um, there are a number of indicators that there's how many files they work with on a weekly basis, what time of day are they working on those files. It turns out that you know people that are, want to take a bunch of data start working with more files than they normally do on a, on a given week. It turns out that they do it at off hours, which ironically allows us to identify them more easily than if they did it on hours. Um, and so th- there are things like that. But the number one indicator that somebody is about to take data turns out to be that they're leaving the company. And um, in putting in this new technology platform, time and time again, our clients are finding that people are leaving with customer lists. Um, they're leaving. They're leaving with HR information. They're leaving with source code. Um, I'll give you a. I'll give you a, a specific example here. We have a, a client that does uh, uh, heating and air conditioning systems for large buildings. You know, it's not a sexy business. It's about they're there, but they do big contracts for a brand new building. And um, they developed a system to show off how their systems work in a new building, and it won them a number of deals in a row. Their competitor hired away uh, an IT person, and as that IT person was leaving, they took all of the plans and uh, and all the code that built the system to show that, so that the competitor could do it. And um, and so that kind of malicious activity is is happening 
it happens fairly frequently. And in a world where, you know, sort of 20 to 25% of people are changing jobs on an annual basis, you've got a lot of people moving from, uh, from different jobs to different jobs. And those people are moving into other companies in their same industry uh, most frequently. And they feel that they should take some of the work that they created for company A to company B. And that's... um, and so we see that quite a bit. You note that, you know, historically, you know, DLP solutions are really based on organizations going through and figuring out what data they cared about and, and kind of classifying that and then just using, you know, DLP technology to kind of filter, look for that information as it as it might be leaving an organization. Talk just a little bit about how the approach that you guys use at Code42 and how it's different than that. And, and also how you strike the balance between, again, wanting to encourage collaboration, sharing and, and kind of seamless uh, movement of data and also protect data from falling into the wrong hands? I think it's kind of ridiculous in today's world to expect an organization to be able to classify its most important data. So give you a couple examples. Uh, The HR person that downloads all the payroll information into a PDF is not going to say, by the way, this is our most important information. Or the salesperson that, that downloads from Salesforce a spreadsheet of all of the customers in a particular region is not going to classify that data as confidential data. So because we're all able to manipulate and pull data from different systems in this new collaborative world, the expectation that the employees themselves who are about to exfiltrate or steal that data are going to classify it as important is just completely unrealistic. So one of the religious tenets that we have is that all data is important. And only after the fact, when you're doing an investigation, um, should you know, can you decide whether or not that was important? And that, that is a unique thing to how we, how we go to market is we keep a copy of all the data that is exfiltrated, not just the metadata about that information, but we keep a copy of the files, which allows our customers to go back in during an investigation where they have a concern and see what that file actually is. A specific example, we had a, a customer name a file, you know, uh, one password. They just said, this is the one password file, no big deal. It's got all my passwords in it. And in the investigation, uh, the security team subsequently found that there was all kinds of network passwords and IP addresses and locations that would allow an external hacker to enter their network uh, at a later date. And again, the employee didn't identify it as as critical information, and also just named it something innocuous that uh, that you know that required us to go look at it. So that whole idea of classification, I think, is outmoded and outdated. And the people that are in that business will tell you, "Oh, but we're using you know AI to help better classify data and screen data, etc." But um, that 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 is completely unproven. So we just take the view that all, all data, all data is important data and you want to keep track of, of everything that people are moving. AI is like the magic brush that everybody's painting their security exactly. solution with. It's like, exactly. And <laughs> oh. yeah, I always say, I'm going to do my best not to even mention AI, you know, like, cause it just, it's, it's, it's a four letter exa- word. Exactly. <laughs> and then the whole idea, you know, the, all t- the traditional stuff, also, the whole idea of blocking all these activities and all this action is like that's that's completely opposite of what we're trying to do with sharing and co- and collaborating with each other. I think fundamentally, what these these pro- the older legacy solutions have a problem with is that they just were not built for the cloud world. 
They're all old technology that isn't built for the cloud. And all of this new technology is cloud-based. So you have to be able to connect into all these cloud systems, put the data in a cloud repository that then can, can then be correlated and searched uh, instantly, while also collecting information from the endpoint, um, which is the major exfiltration area. And so we built a system from the ground up in the last couple of years that, that does all that. And um, and I think that's the probably the main fundamental difference between uh, what we're doing today and, and all the old legacy solutions. I, I think many organizations, when they when they think of insider threat, they think of kind of the mole, you know, or the the, the first person who's, you know, working for a competitor or uh, maybe, um, you know, God, God forbid, a, you know, a, a foreign government or something. And it's real cloak and dagger stuff. And they're kind of like, yeah, nobody's, that's, we're not going to have to deal with that type of stuff. You know, we're just, you know, we're not worthy of that type of James Bond stuff. Should they be? I mean, is that is that type of activity, whether it's a cyber criminal, whether it's really just um, corporate espionage or or nation state, is it actually more common than people might think? Yeah, I think I think that's why I gave you the example of the HVAC company. We, we're, we're finding it's literally in every industry. Um, you have information that's important and helps you compete against your competitors. And um, most people that are leaving organizations, you know, and there's not a lot of, we, we don't see a lot of that nation state mole type of activity. We don't see somebody who is um, working for company uh, A and then, you know, sending data to company B while staying at work for company A. We do see that nation state activity at, at some of our universities, particularly with China, honestly, we do see that. But, but for most of our companies, no matter how big or how small, they have competitors. And it isn't that somebody's sending data off the corporate network to the other guys and still staying as a mole. It's that they pick up and leave. They, they respond to a job ad. It's, it's as easy to find a job today as it is to, to do anything else. You look on Jobbyte or Indeed and they have a, a position posted and I can get $20,000 in increased pay. And oh, by the way, I've got 10 years of work here that will probably be very valuable when I move over to the new place. That's what we see quite a bit. And we see it across industries. You know, some people say, well, is that just, you know, the starting employees, the young people, they don't know. Nope. We see um, at vice president level and senior vice president level, just as frequently as we see it at a manager level or an individual contributor level. It isn't a case of uh, just a few, a few, parts of the organization. We're seeing it across. I will say, I think it's it's a big problem. Um, 60% of people actually admit to taking data with them when they leave their last job. Part of that is it's become so easy and it's become, become so accepted. And p- part of our mission in, in the world is we feel like if we do a good job of, of putting up some guardrails in place, people are less likely to uh, to do things that maybe they otherwise wouldn't do. You know, as we think about this problem, one of the things that we're working on is the whole employee life cycle of a person. So right now we have this great view of folks um, who are departing. We call it our departing employee lens, which makes it super easy for people to see who's leaving and what have they taken in the last 90 days. Um, we've, we've also just launched what we call the high-risk lens. So at any time someone's an employee, not just when they're departing, if there's some concern from security or from HR or from a manager about this employee, we can we can keep track of that employee. And we're soon to launch the, uh, what we call our new employee lens. So if a new employee joins an organization and within the first few weeks, uploads a ton of data, that's probably a sign that they might be bringing someone else's uh, intellectual property into your organization, which can have oh, interesting. its own 
uh, really bad consequences. And so, sure, sure. So the way we look at it is we're looking at the whole life cycle of the employee from the day they start to the day they end, that we'll keep track of, of their data and make sure that it's safe and that it's, uh, that's well protected. And also if they abuse sort of the, the collaboration rights that they can be, uh, that, that that can be corrected. And when we do that, we want to create what we call the system of record, uh, for that employee so that if somebody, you know, you know, a year from now says, Hey, Joe left code 42. And now he works for one of our direct competitors. Joe didn't actually take any data with, with them when he left a year ago, did he? We will have that, uh, stored as a system of record of here's actually what Joe did in his last 90 days, uh, before he left. And that can be extremely valuable data to an organization. Most organizations would say, we have no idea. You know, he handed in his laptop and it was wiped. I guess the last thing that I would add that we're, we're hoping employers do is think about data the same way they think about the key card that grants you access and the laptop that they respond. So when, when anyone, mo- every organization I know has an offboarding process when you leave, they you know, come by and they take your laptop and they take your key card so you can't get back into the building and they take your laptop so you can't get on their network. But what they don't do is they don't have a process for evaluating what data you took from the organization. And so as we as we go out and talk to people, we say that's an important um, process to put in and to add to your departing employee processes. Let's make sure we check their data and see what they had. And in my own company, we do that. And we have found people who've taken data that they shouldn't be taking. And it's as easy as having a conversation with them, asking them to return that data, putting them on notice that they shouldn't be using that anywhere else. And that that tends to be a, a very effective way of doing it. And that allows us to keep the organization open and free flowing and trusting because we know we have that layer of uh, security built in. Yeah. Trust is hard, right? Yeah. Trust, trust and verify, right? Is that, the, is that the old statement? Well, and the last thing is like pictures worth a thousand words. So if you've got listeners here that are happen to be at RSA in the next few weeks, um, they should swing by Code 42's booth and just look at what we've done. And, and it's all very obvious. Hey, Joe, uh, you guys are going to be out at RSA. It's a big place. Uh, where, where are you going to be? Where can people check you out? Well, we're in the North Hall. We're in uh, where probably most of the big security companies are. And uh, we're in North 6079. N6079. Please come see us. We'll show you the technology. We'll, we'll give you a free t-shirt like everybody else at RSA. And hopefully you'll, you'll see in person all the things that we've talked about today. Hey, Joe Payne of Code42. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for the time, Paul. Joe Payne is the president and CEO of the firm Code42. 